Welcome to Podcasting Stories, insights and interviews from people just like you, using podcasts to grow their business and share their message. Podcasting Stories is brought to you by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now, here's your host, Dave Spray. Hi, this is David Spray. Welcome to another episode of Podcasting Stories. My guest today is Doug McCullough. Doug's a attorney in Houston, and he's a member of uh, Think Tank, and the he has his own podcast with a co-host called Urbane Cowboys. He's done nearly 150 episodes, and so he has a lot of experience with podcasting and a lot of great lessons to be learned for somebody considering a podcast. And one of the biggest lessons and takeaways was he talked about the fact that he has not received much business from his podcast but he's received business from being on other people's podcasts. And the way he was able to be on other people's podcasts was by having a podcast of his own. So indirectly, having a podcast ended up uh, resulting in new business for his firm. I hope you enjoyed this uh, episode as much as I did. Doug's a very interesting guy, and I think you'll really enjoy this a lot. Hi, welcome to another episode of Podcasting Stories. My guest today is Doug McCullough. Doug is a partner in the law firm of McCullough and Sudan, a corporate transactions law firm with a presence in Houston, Dallas, and Austin. Doug received a BA in history from Indiana University, his law degree from Texas Tech School of Law, and his LLM from the SMU School of Law. Doug is the co-host of a podcast called Urbane Cowboys, which was launched in 2018 and is closing in on 150 episodes. Doug, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. So, uh, I want to start with, uh, I always thought you were like a lifelong Texan, but the fact that you <laughs> went to college undergrad in Indiana gives me pause. Uh, where are you from originally? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm actually originally from Indiana. Uh, I guess I've been in Texas since about 1995, uh, married a Texas girl. My, my sons are from here. So, uh, you know, this is, this is definitely home now. So like me, you're a naturalized Texan. That's right. Yeah. Texan by choice. <laughs> That's right. So uh, when you uh, were studying uh, history, was mm-hmm. was it always the plan to go to law school or was it just the case that when you graduated with your history degree, you looked around at what your career opportunities were? Which uh, oh. Which path was it or was it something different? Yeah, it was definitely something different. I, uh, it was a, I was, I was on a path to become a Middle Eastern history professor of all things. Um, I had taken three years of Arabic and, uh, was, was pretty much had my mindset on going and getting a PhD. And I watched this B art movie. Um, and there's this in the story in the movie, there's a professor, the very frustrated professor who walks up to a chalkboard back when, you know, there was chalkboards. And he yeah. writes on the board, um, to know is not enough. And he throws down the piece of chalk and walks out of the room. And I changed my mind right there. It's like, really? I, didn't want, I didn't want to spend the rest of my life talking about what people had done hundreds or thousands of years ago. I thought, I want to go do something. So that literally was the moment that I changed my mind. Um, so law school was sort of a path out, trying to find something else. I honestly, when I, when I applied for law school, I thought there was a very good chance I would join the State Department or CIA. So okay. um, it was just sort of the start of a journey. Wow. 
that's uh, that is uh, that is one of the best stories I've ever heard for uh, <laughs> for a career path. And what year was that in your undergrad? Was that your junior year or that, your senior yeah, year? Yeah, that would have been. Yeah, that probably would have been right about my junior senior year because I was already I was already so far along that I was looking at uh, Middle Eastern history programs, um, and so that probably was my senior year when I just decided to pivot. Wow. And I can see why you would have expected to work for the State Department or, you know, some uh, avenue to take advantage of your Middle Eastern uh, studies. So what caused the shift then from that tentative plan to being a corporate uh, and transactional attorney? Yeah. So when I when I applied for law school, my thought was um, I thought that really what I was going to end up doing is maybe State Department, maybe CIA or move down to Texas and uh, find a, a, a corporate law job doing oil and gas, doing some type of uh, international energy type of work. And that's, that's really the closest to any of, the, any of those three that actually happened. Um, I've never worked in the energy industry directly, but certainly here in, in Houston, um, that's, you know, that's already been part of the client mix and have always done a lot of international business. So that one actually was the closest to what actually, you know, among the three choices, that's the one that actually was pretty close. I see. Now, how did you end up at Texas Tech Law School in Lubbock, Texas? Because there's a lot of law schools between Bloomington, Indiana and Lubbock, Texas. So there's a bit of a story to that too. So I had made up my mind that I didn't want to stay in Indiana the rest of my life. And since you practice law where you're licensed, I thought I need to make a choice about where I'm going to actually practice law for the rest of my life. And I chose Texas. It looked like it had good prospects. I think I've chosen well in terms of, you know, long-term prospects for the state. Um, and what happened was I did a tour of several law schools in Texas and as soon as I get back to Indiana after those tours, I discover there's some other law school called Texas Tech. Didn't okay. visit it. And we put in the application, get some scholarship money, and I'm like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna accept. And I had I had come in and toured Texas. I came in through the uh, you know the eastern side of Texas, beautiful piney woods and so forth. And when I actually moved to Lubbock, I came down through the Panhandle. And I was mortified because I hadn't <laughs> seen that part of the t part of Texas before. I had no idea what I was in for. So there was a bit of a shock for a little while. I had to get used to the Panhandle and then down into uh, in Lubbock and that part of the state. And it was definitely different than I was anticipating, but I learned to love it. So you're saying what you you basically accepted Texas Tech sight unseen? Absolutely. But so it was, you know, it was a great school and it was a great experience, though. Sure. Um, so, yeah, that that West Texas landscape, I think some people describe it as rugged beauty is uh, is one description. Yeah. And it, it kind of uh, this is going to sound strange to anybody who hasn't spent a lot of time there. It, it kind of gets in your blood. And uh, even this past year during the pandemic, my family, we've taken a couple of trips out to West Texas more in the the Marfa, Guadalupe Mountains, Big Bend area, and even, this is going to sound strange, but as I'm anticipating these trips, I can almost, I can almost taste West Texas because it's like you get this, you get the grit of the, the dirt blowing around and there's just this <laughs> smell to it. And it sounds terrible, 
but there's something sort of back in the, you know, back in the mind, the nostalgia, like I, I want this, I'm longing for this. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a love hate relationship. That is awesome. Cause is that technically considered high plains? Yes, that's right. Love. It. Yeah. So it's really a similar topography as like Eastern Colorado and, uh, really that whole area, you know, kind of straight right. North of there, Eastern New Mexico and, right. um, uh, okay. Well, you know, it's interesting. I had a similar experience on how I ended up at the University of Texas in Austin. I always thought I was going to Texas A&M. I grew up in a small town outside of San Antonio, Austin, UT just seemed a little overwhelming. So I was planning to go to A&M. I was accepted to both schools. Now, these are back in the days that it was a lot easier to get into UT than it is uh, today. But um so my campus visit at A&M was so bad that I went home and accepted UT sight unseen. <laughs> so my first time to, to be on the campus was when I showed up in August to uh, move into my, uh, my dorm room. So sometimes uh, ignorance uh, is bliss that way, isn't it? Right, right. So um, uh, let's just talk a bit about your, uh, your law practice. So uh, I understand you're, you do mostly corporate transactional work. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So um, I guess I've been practicing since uh, uh, 98, so it's been a while. Um, and this law firm we formed about six years ago. Um, and sort of the background on that is I had worked with um, Phil Sudan early as a young associate, and I worked with him for about eight years. And then I went off and did some other things. And just you know, a few years ago, uh, Phil and I decided, uh, as we say, get the band back together and grew a nice little boutique law firm. And our idea is to sort of replicate that firm that he was a partner in many years ago uh, of really being what we consider a sort of upscale corporate boutique, really no interest in doing litigation because it's a whole different, it's a whole, you know, I certainly understand how sort of large firms and even mid-sized firms sort of blend corporate and litigation. It makes sense, mm -hmm. but there's sort of an, there's sort of an opportunity to kind of run a corporate deal shop that really operates very differently and really doesn't have all the overhead and all the administrative needs of litigation to kind of a world apart in our mind. Um, and so that was the concept we do, uh, like corporate law, mergers and acquisitions, a lot of international business. So we kind of, we think we kind of differentiate ourselves in the marketplace. And how, and how do I think about that as compared to say, because obviously like uh, Vincent and Elkins or Fulbright, you know, does corporate transactional work. Mm -hmm. What, um, how would I think about, like, let's just say I was, you know, had a client that was uh, needing some corporate work done. What would make me, what would might be the characteristics of a client that would make me think, Hey, I should give Doug a call. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, what we usually see is, um, on the large end, we're probably not chasing the same clients, but we might be, you know, on the other side of the table to the extent you actually sit across real tables anymore. Uh, so if we're negotiating yeah. a deal, we very well may be, um, opposite. They may be representing a large corporate buyer or a large, you know, private equity firm, and we'd be representing the seller. So most of the time when we're working on M&A, we, we really are against the large law firms, not that much the mid-sized firms sometimes. Um, but it really tends to be we we are sort of opposite those firms. And so we're typically not going after the same clients, but we're often playing in the same deal space. And I think the like on the general counsel side where we have ongoing relationships, the story we often hear when we have a new client that comes from a 
you know, much larger firm is, you know, they're, they're sort of tired of paying high fees, um, but being sort of a low man on the totem pole, not getting the type of response mm-hmm. because to those large firms, the, you know, they're kind of a small client, but to us like, well, this is just a nice size client that's thriving in the marketplace and they really deserve some personalized attention that they're just not getting in a big firm. So your client is more that mid-market privately held company and you're going to be more on the sell side of, uh, of deals. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's generally right. We probably do on this, you know, on the M&A work, we probably do, it's almost 50-50. It's probably 55 to 60% sell side, but we still end up picking up a lot of um, buy side work because those same companies are doing acquisitions. And, uh, you know, so we, we end up doing almost 50-50, but just a slightly more on the sell side. I see. So, so maybe like a perfect client's like a hundred million dollar revenue company who's acquiring some, you know, five to ten million dollar companies, and then at some point may sell to, you know, a Fortune five hundred. Is that kind of what it might right. be? Right. Like? I mean, that's yeah, that's that's ideal. And then what happens is obviously when you have a uh, a lot of times the sell side sell side engagements. Um, a lot of times there's a referral to us. It's sort of what we'd say one and done. Somebody refers to some, a company that's about to sell. Uh, we work through that deal and then we no longer have that client. Where the nice sure. thing about the ongoing client is, you know, they, we may be doing the day-to-day corporate work for them. And then when they're ready to do an acquisition, we just keep rolling with them and the client's growing. So, you know, there's pros and cons to us on both sides, but we, we enjoy the work on either the buy side or the sell side. And I'm guessing, is it a, a safe assumption that I heard a lawyer once comparing their uh, their work to uh, a, a big firm that they described themselves as more efficient, uh, which I think was another way of saying that the uh, that, that the fees ended up being less because there weren't you know so many layers of associates and partners involved. Is that would you say that's accurate in your firm? Is that part of the value proposition? Oh, absolutely. There's, yeah, we often get on a phone call negotiating um, with a larger law firm and they'll have several attorneys on the call and, and maybe one or two on our side. Um, and so there's sort of an efficiency there. There's not as many uh, people touching each document, if you will. And then we just kind of have a different mindset in terms of we view our value as we're doing good, competent work, um, but we're not trying to bleed every client. And I don't mean that as disparaging a large law firm, but we just have mm-hmm. a different approach where if you're a you know, very large corporation, you don't mind spending the fees to have you know, several different sets of eyes looking at a legal document and so forth, where for many of our clients are like, hey, we want to be protected. We want to get a good deal done, um, but they're not looking to over lawyer you know, all, all of their legal documents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard uh, it seems like uh, and I haven't followed this lately, but I know uh, a while back when uh, new associate uh, starting salaries just were really, you know, kind of going through the roof, you know, had moved past, I think, 150. And this was, geez, probably eight or 10 years ago. I remember that uh, I was reading this article and somebody said, yeah, those associates have to realize, though, that every time the base salary ramps up, they just need to realize that's going to translate to higher minimum hours that the uh, associate's going to have to bill. Uh, And so it kind of makes me think that too, that at the firm uh, there's a pressure to bill time, right? So uh, that also uh, would seem to uh, 
add to the cost of the legal bill because you have these various oh, attorneys who feel this billing pressure. Where you being a smaller firm with your own firm and a variety of clients, you you probably uh, are not uh, talking to your partner Phil at the end of a month saying, "Hey Phil, you know you uh, I'm disappointed you didn't bill more hours last <laughs> month, right?" Right, right, right. So um, let's switch gears to the podcast. I love the name Urbane Cowboys. So I assume that's, is that kind of a takeoff on the movie Urban Cowboy from the late 70s? Yeah, yeah only loosely because neither one of us, I have a podcast partner, neither one of us is cl- going to claim to be old enough to actually have seen the movie. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a play on the words. Uh, and the, I guess you could say the, the rationale behind the name is both of us are based in Texas. There's the Cowboys part. And I guess you could say the sort of tongue in cheek, um, urbane part of it is, is that both, we're both affiliated with think tanks. Uh, he's, that's his full-time job is working at a think tank called R Street Institute. And, and I'm affiliated with, um, Lone Star Policy Institute as a director. So, uh, that's sort of the play on words there. So tell me about the Lone Star Policy Lone Star Policy Institute. Did I get that right? Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. not familiar with that. Yeah, we're, we're still pretty new. Um, and as you can imagine, like so many things, we sort of lost a year, if you will, with everything that's happened in the world. Um, so we're still a brand new organization about three years in. And um, what happened was uh, a friend of mine and I, we met at a, a National Review Institute program, uh, sort of reading uh, all these great classical works, if you will, um, political philosophy and such was a really fun experience. And during that, he made a comment um, that he wanted to start a think tank someday. And I think I missed the whole someday part. And I'm sort of very <laughs> gung ho. And I'm like, well, let's go do it. And so we've gone out and we've, you know, we started this think tank, uh, still pretty small, but we've been pretty engaged. Like, for instance, right now, we're part of uh, one of the coalitions we're on is uh, Alliance on Antitrust. Uh, we've done a lot of work on things like free trade, now the antitrust side. And generally, what I would say is sort of promoting um, free market principles. So we don't try to touch on every area of policy, but particularly for me, anything that's sort of related to business regulation and free market economics, where I can have an opportunity to sort of uh, educate young people about the way free market capitalism is meant to work and the opportunities there. That's something that I'm passionate about, and so it's been a fun outlet. Well, I tell you, I, uh, I'm probably interested in exploring this because I'm also uh, passionate about uh, the free market and uh, capitalism. In fact, I actually have a company, and the name of it is the Capitalist Corporation. Uh, <laughs> so uh, so uh, we should probably uh, talk, uh, talk offline more about that. Um, yeah, and I really love the podcast, and I, in preparation for this, I listened to a few episodes. And uh, one of the guests you had was a, just a fascinating uh, Chinese guy whose name I don't recall, who's a Chinese expat, I guess is the technical mm-hmm. term. Uh, and I think it was one of your most recent episodes. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, the you gentleman. Would, you would, yeah, you would pick on that episode uh, because we could talk about the things that can go wrong with podcasting. Um, so I get as far are you referring, into that. Are, you, are you referring to maybe some of the opinions he, he stated? that were not exactly politically correct. <laughs> yeah, I was I was ready to jump in uh, with some of the statements he said with with what I would call a follow-up questions. Um <laughs> but something funny happened along the long, along the way to that is um I was I forget if I was working from home or from the office that day and I get as far as being able to say my usual intro where I say I'm Doug McCullough from the Lone Star Policy Institute 
And minutes later, my Wi-Fi cuts out. And for whatever oh, wow. reason, the, the, the program we used didn't reconnect. It just left me hanging. So I'm having to message my partner because we're not sitting in the same room. I'm like, you're flying solo now. I can't, I can't get into this. So um, I had to sit there and listen to it, but they couldn't hear me. So we've had some, you know, those are that sort was of the, so interesting. It's so interesting you say that because that was the very first episode I listened to. And I remember <laughs> thinking, thinking, wow, Doug doesn't say much. Uh, so that, ex- that explains it. Uh, yeah, there's, fast- there's been a few, there's been a few episodes where we've had technical glitches like that. You try to, um, you know, you try to edit out those issues if you can. And that was one where there's really not much we could do early days. Uh, we remember we had some very, um, very early podcasts where we had some technical issues and one of us was cut off and, uh, you know, we were sitting there debating like, hey, do we edit one of us into the, qu-? you know, like one of us will ask the question and we'll come back and dub in the other one asking so that we both have equal time. Like at this point, we were like, you know, we've got a sort of a track record. People that listen to us are there for the conversation and that's not going to matter as much. So, but yeah, there's, there's, there's sort of those, uh, those little woes that come with podcasting every once in a while, but you just kind of plow through them. Yeah. I heard somebody say that a good enough podcast episode that is released is better than the hypothetically perfect podcast episode that never gets released. <laughs> right. Right. So uh, what started you to, or what prompted you to start the podcast? Was it your involvement uh, in the think in the think tank? Yeah, that's right. So um, at the time, uh, my friend Josiah Neely at R Street, we, we were sort of kicking around some ideas and I said, hey, do you have a podcast? No. I'm like, why don't we start one together, see how this goes? And we were originally thinking maybe once a month and it, it immediately became once a week. It was so easy to do. It gave us an opportunity to, to have conversations that we could really sort of direct the conversation the way we wanted it to go. But I think the thing that was... Um, in you know hindsight, the thing that has amazed me is how easy it is to have really quality guests. Um, you know, an example of this is the most recent podcast we did was um, Allison Schrager. She is a senior fellow at Manhattan Institute and a columnist for um, Bloomberg. She's probably like the fifth um, Bloomberg columnist we've had. So we have various people from you know major publications like Bloomberg, Washington Examiner big think tanks like American Enterprise Institute, Manhattan Institute are pretty much the norm. I mean, you know, we'll have various authors. Somebody will have a book that comes out. We'll immediately, hey, would you like to come on the show? And so we've been able to, a national review is another. We have a pretty good time national review. I mentioned that that's, uh, I've got a relationship with them. And so we've been able to reach out to very prominent writers um, and have them on the show and have, frankly, great conversations. You know, that's when, so I think I had shared with you that, uh, that I had launched another business uh, called your podcast team, helping people who are interested in having a podcast, but just can't quite get past all the, the technical and sort of psychological uh, barriers to, to starting it. And, and that's what caused me to start this podcast, uh, you know, podcasting stories where I interview people who either have a podcast or are considering it. And one of the things I tell people is I say, having a podcast is like having a superpower. And that's one of the examples I give. I say, when you ask somebody to be a guest on your podcast, 
it seems to go to the same part of their brain as if you said, hey, I don't know if you know, uh, Doug, but next week I'm guest hosting The Tonight Show. Would you like to pop by for a few minutes and uh, be on the show? <laughs> it's like it's like it's in the same part of their brain, right? I mean, because they 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 hear podcasts, they hear guests, and it's like, wow, they're flattered. And then and they don't actually think, hmm, how many people a week actually listen to this podcast? Uh, you know, they just hear podcasts. Sure, I'm happy to go on. So has that kind of been your experience as well? That people are they 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 give your podcast maybe more credibility than maybe uh it might uh warrant just based on listening stats? Well, I don't know about that because I mean I, I think the the body of our work warrants them coming on the show. But no, I think you're right. I mean, we've only it's only been a handful of people that have ever asked us what's your listenership, right? So um I think that what we have been able, particularly now, when we ask somebody to come on the show, um, depending on what their affiliation is or some uh, something like that, like if we want to reach out to a columnist at National Review, we'll drop some names and say, hey, we've had these five different writers from National Review. Same thing with Bloomberg or American Enterprise or wherever it may be is say, hey, you know, these are these are the type of guests that we've had. And it's been interesting because um, the, the product, uh, the, 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 the different shows we've done have been everything from uh, economics, um, environmental policy, genetics. Um, you mentioned the uh, the person uh, who's on the show who was talking about uh, sort of almost Manchurian nationalism. So <laughs> there's right, a, middle, right. a wide diversity of the things we talk about, but there's usually some tie-in that we say, "Hey, we've had someone like you that you probably heard of who's been on the show," and you know, and that usually in, entices them to come on the show and have a conversation. Yeah, it's interesting, right? The the higher caliber the guest you can acquire, the easier it is to. Uh, to uh, entice the next high caliber guest, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So, um, so I'd like to talk to you now about some of the benefits you've experienced from having a podcast. So uh, to help our potential clients kind of get a handle on, you know, why they might want to have a podcast, we created a document called the 50 benefits of a podcast. And we uh, will have the link in the show notes, but it's at yourpodcast.team slash 50 benefits, five zero benefits. Um, and you were kind enough to review this list and, uh, and kind of mark a few that seemed relevant. So if you don't mind, I'd like to just kind of talk a bit about those. Uh, so uh, uh, question seven is uh, not everyone has time to read uh, 4,500 words. Um, so talk to me about why that one seemed to resonate with you. Well, that's a, that's a really a big one because, you know, sort of in this think tank space, um, sort of the broader picture is uh, there's uh, there's a lot of changes that are happening in that space. And particularly during the Trump administration, there was a lot of conversations about how uh, the sort of waning influence of think tanks and so many administrations would come in and they would just hire from all these different think tanks that, like, oh, you've written you've written this definitive paper um, on this topic. So I'm going to put you I'm going to point you to some particular position. So there wasn't that as much. There wasn't as much leaning on think tanks to produce content like deep thought content. And so there's been this ongoing conversation among, in the think tank world of like, where do we go next? And the reality is. You know, not that many people read white papers. Um, I certainly there's topics that are interesting to me, 
that I don't read the white papers, even though there's some people that I know. I mean, there's some topics that I do that I will read, read it, you know, from start to finish every word. But you don't actually read that many white papers. You see articles summarizing white papers and all this. And then from my perspective, if I'm trying to uh, not just influence, say, a policymaker, but I'm actually trying to get into uh, trying to help educate younger people about, say, the marketplace, they're never going to read that white paper, right? And so you've got to have a way to communicate. And so for me, um, the best thing is an in-person conversation. But the next best thing is probably something like a podcast where it feels like a conversation that they might casually listen to, you know, as they're doing other things, but they're never going to sit down and read it. They're not, you know, if they're reading, they may not get past the headline. And I don't mean to judge them because I read headlines too, but they're never going to read some deep, you know, economic white paper. Mm-hmm. And do you listen to podcasts yourself? Less than I should. <laughs> when we, when we started, I listened to them quite regularly just to try to, uh, you know, sort of see what others were doing, get a feel for it. Um, but now it's much more topical, if you will, um, mm-hmm. of finding, you know, there's certain certain podcasters that I like that I will peruse to see, okay, what are they talking about? Who's their guest? And for me personally, it's it's probably driven by the, uh, the, the topic and the guest. Like, is this relevant to me? Is, I mean, is this something I'm curious about? Rather than being sort of a loyal listener to other people's shows, although everyone absolutely should be a loyal listener to the Urban Cowboys. Of, of course they should. Um, so, well, let's shift gears to, uh, to the next section, which is uh, we call authority. And this is uh, uh, benefits eight through 12. And you uh, check two of them. Uh, number eight, uh, become an authority in your field. And number 10, gain instant credibility. Um, could you talk to me why you, you thought those benefits kind of resonated with you from based on your experience? Yeah, and sort of tying back to what I was saying before, that the podcast really gave us sort of instant content as a think tank that was easier than doing white papers. And by being able to have a conversation with a peer um, at a at another think tank whose full-time job is, you know, cranking out white papers, doing deep research on international trade or uh, antitrust regulation or environmental policy and have a, you know, a, a sort of deeper conversation with them, exploring their ideas, exploring their research. You're sort of now instantly becoming a peer. Um, and what you're able to do is really have that. Um, I think people start to say, okay, this, you're able to actually engage this topic meaningfully and ask probing questions that, you know, that, you know, particularly a person who's sort of uh, a casual listener um, who maybe doesn't have as much deep experience in, you know, some environmental policy, but they see that you're kind of speaking on behalf of, I guess you could say, the man on the street and asking a probing question, like, well, what about this? Explain this to me. And then on the flip side, having the conversation sort of peer to peer with the, you know, the think tank experts or, you know, prominent journalists where they have this, you know, they're obviously already have their credibility their credibility sort of gives you a, that glow that you're a peer of theirs, but also, you know, it sort of, it gives you the platform where you're part of the conversation, you control the conversation and you really do sort of project yourself into that stratosphere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no I, uh, I agree. That's been my experience as well. Um, so moving on, there were two more that you, you checked of the 50 that resonated, uh, wonder one was under the subheading control 
full control over the conversation topics and duration. I tell people who are considering a podcast, I said, you know, in some ways it's a little bit like having a radio show, except that you have no constraints like you do with a radio show, right? I mean, you have very tight time limits. You have uh, other, you know, kind of guidance, uh, you know, commercial breaks. And one of the benefits of a podcast is that control. And so uh, so talk to me a bit about the the benefit you've seen or the value you perceive by having that full control over the topics and the duration. Right. Yeah. So I, I would, let me kind of sort of take a step back and say, you know, predating the podcast, um, I've moderated a lot of in-person panels on a lot of different topics. And being that moderator puts you in a position to sort of set the topic, ask the questions you want to ask, um, choose your panelists and have the conversation sort of flow a way that you want it to go. And also um, something that's important to me is to have a collegial uh, conversation in goodwill, even with people that you disagree with, but have a meaningful exploratory conversation. And that's what I've been able to do in the past with uh, roundtables, with various um, public panels, um, things like that. And so to me, the podcast serves very much the same type of function of this is a conversation. I'm, you know, I'm sitting here as one of the moderators and we get to have, you know, be able to choose the guest um, and then ask them the questions to kind of take them down a certain direction. And, you know, it, 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 we certainly have guests on that we don't agree with fully. Um, you know, be, some of the guests would make actually a really great debate because we have uh, we've had guests on our show that take completely different positions on important issues. Um, but you sort of have the ability to have that conversation in good faith, um, let them you know describe what they believe, and then sort of probe um, you know some of maybe the weaknesses in their argument and sort of let them tease out what they really mean or something like that. And so it gives you this ability to kind of control the entire topic and flow of the conversation yet also, and I think this is the part that's, you know, that I strive for whether I do it every time or not is it, it really allows sort of a good faith conversation um, that, you know, would maybe with people that you know, that you disagree with. Wow. I didn't, you must be the last bastion of civil discourse in this country. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and, and I, and I, you know, I pause to say, you know, I try, I strive for this because, We've had some we've had some guests on the show that I'm diametrically opposed to, and it's difficult to keep that civility. Um, and at times, it's like it's hard to strike that balance to say, okay, I I I don't believe what you're telling me. I don't believe in the same values that you're expressing. And at one point, you feel sort of a need to differentiate yourself from that and you need to mm -hmm. you feel the need to sort of almost as, as if you're representing a constituency that people expect you to say, but what about this? You have that right, on the other right. side. It's like, but I also feel like I'm there to be collegial and let them have their space to say something. So there's this balance. And I, and I don't for one minute say that I, that I get it right every time. Wow. So, uh, you have a much more difficult challenge than I do because, uh, I tend to only have guests on uh, talking about topics that I'm pretty sure we uh, we see similarly. So, uh, so kudos to you for the uh, journalistic courage uh, that I would imagine that uh, that <laughs> requires. Um, so, going to the last one, uh, question forty eight. Um, 
So the statement is, it's easier to produce a consistent podcast than regular blog posts. Uh, so talk to me about why, uh, why that resonated with you. Well, I mean, it's, I guess it's pretty straightforward too. even to come up with a, a blog post, uh, uh, you know, there was a time, you know, probably pre pandemic when I was, uh, I was writing op-eds on a regular basis, getting published, you know, on national platforms on a regular basis. I mean, almost weekly, but even, even something like that takes some rigor. Um, you have to generate the idea. You have to go back it up with research and there's a, you know, there's a certain amount of rigor that has to go into that. And that's frankly hours of time to produce, you know, what's effectively just a one op-ed that's maybe 900, 900 words. Um, but the, you know, having a radio show where you bring on a guest who has written a recent op-ed or has re- recently read a, you know, written a book or something like that, where you know where they're going, what their viewpoint is. Um, not, you know, sometimes we have to actually really do show prep, but, but often you, you're familiar with somebody's work. You've read something provocative that they just wrote about, you know, the broader context of what the issue is. I mean, for instance, in COVID, you know, we were all sort of up to the minute of reading COVID stats. Um, and so in those times, it's, it was much easier just to say, hey, come on here and tell us what you're seeing right now. And other times mm-hmm. you do have to do some show prep, but it's still not the same as uh, needing to have something that is uh, polished, edited, sourced, so that you actually have good, detailed um, back, you know, support for what you're writing. If you're doing it, whether it's on a blog or if you're trying to do this as some, you know, some uh, some op-ed that you're going to pitch to, you know, whatever uh, national platform. That is ingenious, Doug. Instead of you doing all the work, you find somebody else who's already <laughs> done the work, and you just let them come talk about their work. I uh, I Absolutely. love it. I love it that I'm going to uh, I'm going to go ahead and borrow that idea. Um, <laughs> so uh, another question I have: so like with our clients, we usually recommend that they start with a monthly cadence, and uh, and the reason is because you probably know some of some of these podcast stats that like on iTunes a couple months ago there were 1.7 million. Uh, total podcast shows, you know, not episodes, but shows. But of those, uh, the majority of them had not published a new or released a new episode in the last 90 days. And of the ones who had released an episode in the last 90 days, half of those had not broken the 10 episode barrier. So there's only, as of a couple months ago, there were only 377,000 podcasts worldwide on the Apple platform who had released more than 10 episodes and had published (laughs) in the last 90 days. And so, and I'm sure you've seen this, we call it podcast fade, where you find a podcast you're interested in, then you start looking at like the chronology of of episodes. And it's like, they start off real excited. They're doing an episode a week and then it's two a month and then it's one a month and then it's one a quarter. And then the last one was back in 2015. So we, we recommend our clients start monthly and once they get the hang of that, our theory is it's it, it, it's got better optics to increase your frequency over time than to decrease your frequency. But you, on the other hand, started right off with weekly cadence and you've been able to maintain that. So could you just talk to me about that? Has that been a challenge to, to release that uh, regularly or has it been, uh, been not that difficult for you? 
Um, both. <laughs> That's okay. an unfair answer. Uh, yeah, we started with the idea that it would be monthly, and then I think we released a, a second episode the following week. I mean, I think literally the first episode was meant to be a pilot, um, and we were going to circle back and see if we wanted to do it again in a month. And we we started immediately the following following week. Uh, doing more because getting off the ground was so easy. And I think early on, it was like, there's a whole world around us of so many different topics of like, you know, we, we know these people are these different think tanks, these different organizations, and we can have them on and they, these people. on. And so it was like, you could see just how easy it would be to have ongoing content. And then actually what happened during sort of the, you know, some of the, uh, uh, the bigger uh, COVID surges, we actually went to two a week because we felt like the information was coming so fast that, that once a week wasn't good enough. Um, and so that we only did that for a while, but we just felt like we had to be doing something daily would have been too much, but we thought two, two a week was actually made sense. Um, but there's definitely challenges. I mean, cause, um, you know, both of us have our own schedules. Um, I'm practicing law and doing, you know, doing other things. And, you know, my partner, he's full-time at a think tank. And so we have to work around our schedules. There's times that one of the nice things about having two co two hosts is, uh, if there's a time, one of us on vacation or something like that, the other one can just step in and fly solo or have a guest host. Cause I've done that a few times where I bring in a friend of mine as a, a ho- co-host when Josiah has not been available. So that's actually been a nice crutch, if you will. Um, but you okay. know, life happens and, um, we had some, you know, b- with some of the crazy things that have happened in my life, um, in the past few months, we've, we've missed a few weeks that we probably normally wouldn't, but I think we're also kind of, I don't know. I feel like this is something that, um, that I'm seeing in the business world is we're all kind of, looking around like we're almost out of the pandemic, but we're not quite sure what's happening. And it's kind of a struggle to figure out what the conversation really needs to be because it's like, we're, we're we're not ready to, you know, spike the football and say, we just beat, you know, beat the pandemic, but it's also difficult to find that next topic that is relevant and engaging. I think we did this past week. Um, like I mentioned with uh, Allison Schrager talking about the economic outlook and the, you know, the, the, ch- the challenges, the headwinds, uh, particularly if we have started uh, implementing some bad policy. Now, that's a good topic for us where we can actually say, here's what you should be looking for. Um, you know, here's some policy challenges to your business um, and so forth. So, you know, finding those topics, particularly while we're in a period of transition is really tough. And that's where, that's where sometimes you go do something crazy, like uh, have a Manchurian nationalist on the show (laughs) or you have an episode on UFOs. Gotcha. So um, other than the, as we're rounding the the home stretch now, I can't believe that uh, we're already most of the way through. Um, So other than the 50 benefits that I um, came up with, were there any other benefits that you've experienced of having a podcast that we haven't covered already? Yeah, and I think for me, um, I think for me, it's just sort of the things that I've tied into before that it really is a way to sort of tie everything together for me, uh, because there's some of the some of the podcasts, um, like some of the ones I've mentioned a few times about the economics and um, the and ec- economic regulation and tax and trade that sort of cross both, uh, you know, both aspects, both my law practice as well as the think tank. And it sort of ties everything together neatly. Um, and others are really just more of a, an ex, you know, something, a, a curiosity, just I'm having a conversation. I'm, you know, I don't know the first thing about 
um, you know, po- politics in Hungary, but we've had a, we've had that topic. We've done various things on uh, things like the uh, d- uh, land dispute between China and India. I'm not an expert on that, but it was a way for me to sort of learn out loud, if you will. And so there's been some really interesting experiences just having those conversations and not pretending to know uh, much more than, you know, than walking in like a man on the street. So it's been, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's been at times where an opportunity to sort of be an expert and sort of be there with peers and other times to sort of pivot and say, you know what, I'm learning like everybody else. There's something happening in the world. Tell me what's going on. Yeah, no, I, I get it. And that, and that makes sense. And, and I was thinking back to your comment about when you, when you changed your duration to twice a week for a while, uh, that's enough. That's another example of that whole control of the podcast. You didn't have to run right. that by the radio station uh, you know, to do <laughs> right. more than that. Um, so, you know, a lot of our clients are using the podcast really as kind of an indirect business development uh, uh, activity. And mm-hmm. and I know you you uh, I'd asked you about this before the call, and you'd mentioned that's really not the the purpose of it is to drive business to the law firm. But I'm just curious, have have you um, picked up any business because of the podcast? Um, so uh, I would actually say um, uh, I'm not sure if I have from this podcast in particular, but I have been uh, a guest on some podcasts uh, and that certainly has. Um, and, you know, uh, things of that nature. We we actually, so I'm also part of a um, uh, an organization called the Canada Texas Chamber of Commerce. Um, right. And we have we're we're one of those p- groups that you talked about of having less than ten podcasts because we were just really doing it as almost like a an audio event, if you will. Um, but we've done a few podcasts, and there's been really good feedback from from those and uh, and those create business leads. And certainly, having been a, a guest on other podcasts has has directly uh, led to business opportunities. So that's really interesting um, because you remind me of another point that we tell our clients, and that is the easiest way to become a guest on a podcast is to first invite the host (laughs) of that podcast to be a guest on yours. So, right. right. So, uh, so that's a really good point that I hadn't really fully thought about. And that is that if somebody, because we usually tell our, our clients, we say, look, you know, try to make a two year commitment to doing one episode a month. So 24 episodes and, uh, uh, the typical cost of doing that's about $750 a month. And so we're saying, Hey, so if you make about a twenty thousand dollar and in twenty four hour time commitment, uh, that you know we think this will 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 pay off in the end for you. Uh, but I hadn't really thought about the fact that that even if you said, "Hey, we may not get any business from our podcast," but having a podcast if that allows us to be a guest on a dozen other podcasts and that gives us business, then that ended up being worth it economically to have the podcast. So, yeah, it's uh, like so, it's like a, so much so much uh, of networking. It's about visibility. Uh, frankly, I think that a lot of networking, and this is just another form of networking, right? Is so right. much of it is not only the visibility, but sort of showing your your mental processes and your personality. So yeah, any type of visibility like that can be a good thing as long as you're going about it the right way and sort of maintaining your brand, even when you're doing something as as wacky as doing a, an episode on cryptozoology or UFOs. <laughs> For sure. So just a couple more questions. Um, so what do you know now that you wish you knew when you started your podcast? 
Oh, that's a tough one. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. And in some sense it's, it's been apart from some technical, uh, details, I guess I wish I knew the, uh, the back end of, uh, some of the editing functions and so forth much earlier on, but it's actually been surprisingly easy. The entire, okay. the entire process has been so easy about how we've gone out and, and found quality guests that in some sense, um, you know, I don't know that there's any big stark lesson that we wish we would have known earlier. I think it's just sort of, I don't want to say trial and error, but it, it sort of is. Uh, just get out there, start producing, go in there with sort of a mindset of you've got to sort of protect the brand. You've got to protect, like, for instance, we, we you know, we introduce ourselves as affiliated with two different institutions. And so we go into it with a mindset of, you know, not only are we showing off our personality and our quirkiness, we're also representing these these institutions, and so we have to sort of make sure that we're not doing anything completely inconsistent with that role. And so I think we kind of intuited that, and that guy gave us the guardrails for how we were going to proceed doing this. Even if we're doing something a little quirky as a change of pace, we still kind of know that we're trying to shoot down the fairway. Okay, that that makes sense. And so I think what the real takeaway there is that you're saying you know, just start. And right. um, there's no way to anticipate in advance every obstacle or everything you're going to learn, but just start and uh, you'll be able to learn as you go. Now, in, in all, in all due, or with all due credit, um, your background of having moderated lots of roundtables I would think was probably pretty good training to be a podcast host as well. So that probably, yeah, I think so. I've done, confidence. I've done the panels, um, you know, I, I, my, my first, um, it wasn't really a full major, but my first area that I wanted to go into was journalism. So I had enough journalism background. I was in student radio. Um, so I had a little bit of a media background. I've done a lot of moderating. And then, you know, when you go through law school, they, you, there's an expectation of you, you, you talk a certain way, you present an argument a certain way, you ask questions a certain way, and even history sort of the same way where there's sort of a, a professional ethic. And so all these things are kind of consistent of, hey, I'm, this is about curiosity. Let's go explore these ideas, have a conversation, and try to keep it as collegial as we can. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw you a curveball here that I didn't <laughs> okay. even have on my list, but I'm going to ask you, and I forget who I borrowed this from. So uh, if you could, could go back in time and give some advice to yourself when you were like 20 or 25 years old, what advice might you give yourself now that you know? Huh. Oh, well, yeah. And I'm going to give you an answer that's a curveball. Um, I think that I would have, ta- I, well, I'll, I'll give you two answers. I, I actually saw a, uh, uh, um, someone who's been a guest on the show several times. He said if he could, uh, if he could advise himself when he was 20 years old, he would have, uh, that he would have practiced better dental care. So there's that one. Um, but <laughs> okay. I would say for me, it's, uh, I think that I would have uh, started trail running at a, at a young age. Um, I've never really become a trail runner. Um, I've run nine road marathons. Um, and, uh, but I love hiking and I, and I wish that what, you know, when I was young and had good knees that I would have been do, doing trail running, because I think that's something I've sort of really missed out on that. I really wish I could have gone back and done. What a uh, what a great answer! And this is the thing I love about uh, doing a podcast episode is I've I've known you for for uh, a number of years. I think at least yeah. ten years, 
And I've learned more about you in this last hour than I have in the last 10 years combined. So (laughs) I didn't realize you were, uh, you were a, uh, a runner. Um, so, uh, so thank you for that. Um, is there anything that you wish I had asked you that I did not? No, no. I mean, I think this, uh, I think this sort of, we've, we've had an opportunity to really go through sort of, you know, how, in, in my mind, how Lone Star and the podcast fit together, even with the law firm. And that's kind of the way I've, you know, the way I viewed it is it's when you have an opportunity to go do something like a podcast or something that it's, that you're really passionate about an expression of your personality and some of your in, other interests, and particularly where you can tie it in with your day job, that so many people sort of are inhibited because they feel like they're part of a corporate organization and they got to go get three levels of uh, permission to do something. But what I found in my experience is, you know, if you can just go out there and start small and get started doing something and sort of create your own brand, but also partly for branding, but partly as an expression of who you are and your interests and showing some personality that it can be really liberating just to get started, even if you're starting small. And what I found is, you know, back in the day when I actually had employers instead of working for myself is, you know, the employers, once they kind of see what you're, where you're going and how you're handling it, a lot of times the, the, the permission actually comes pretty quickly. And so there's, you know, I think a lot of my, my advice for other people considering projects like a podcast is, you know, get started and, and then go ask for permission because a lot of times the results are going to speak for themselves and the, and the permission is going to, uh, is going to follow. Unless, of course, you have a written contract that says don't do this without permission. <laughs> sure. Understood. Well, this has really been a lot of fun, Doug. Um, how can people best reach you? So uh, my law firm is McCullough Sudan. Um, our URL, because McCullough Sudan is too hard to spell, our, our URL is uh, dealfirm, D-E-A-L-F-I-R-M.com, and they can reach me through the uh, through that website. I, by the way, I love that domain name. Uh, I think that really is a, is a great differentiator for you because the well, average I, law I, firm is, you know, it's, it's the, you know, five... Uh, you know, the five partners names who make up the firm and then they either have to spell out all of them or they have some acronym that nobody can remember. So I think that's well, great. I, I just I just imagine having to several times a day over the phone spell out McCullough <laughs> at McCulloughStudan.com. And, and that was a non-starter for me. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, Doug, thank you again for making time. This has really been a, a lot of fun. And I think our, our listeners who are considering a podcast are really going to uh, get some, some great value from this. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Have a great day. And there we have it. Another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at www.podcastingstories.com. This podcast is brought to you by your podcast team. If you have ever considered having your own podcast, head over to www.yourpodcast.team to learn more about how they can help you. That's it for this episode. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next time.